0: Hello, and welcome to Unbabbled, a podcast that navigates the world of special education, communication delays, and learning differences. We are your hosts, Stephanie Landis, and Meredith Krummel, and we're certified speech-language pathologists who spend our days at the parish school in Houston, helping children find their voices and connect with the world around them. This episode of Unbabbled was recorded on March 12, 2020, in response to the recent concerns around the novel coronavirus known as COVID-19. The information provided is based on reports and research available at the time of recording. In this episode, special guest host Amy Tanner and I sit down with Dr. Rob Crow to discuss the novel coronavirus known as COVID 19. Dr. Crow has been a pediatrician for 20 years, spending eight of those years with the Army. For the last three years, he has also practiced functional medicine. We are happy to have him as a guest in this timely episode not only because he is an established medical doctor, but he is also a father of five and grandfather of two. His youngest child, Joshua, is a student at the parish School. Dr. Crow has recently opened a new practice in Houston called Zenith Health. Be sure to subscribe to Unbabbled in the podcast platform of your choice, as we will be releasing an additional episode featuring our directors of early childhood and elementary discussing ways to keep your child engaged and learning in the event of an extended school closure. Hi, we're here with Dr. Crow. Dr. Robert Crow is a pediatrician and today we're going to speak with him in this special episode about COVID-19. Thanks for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. Appreciate I,
0: it. Of course. And I have with me a special guest co-host today, <laughs> Amy Tanner, the Director of Advancement. Amy, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks. Glad to be here. My dreams are coming true. <laughs> You're on a podcast. Yay. So we thought it was important to sit down with Dr. Crow today to talk about COVID-19. It's a huge topic in our community right now, and we have families who might be feeling a little anxious, so we just wanted to get a little more information. So Dr. Crow, can you tell us what do you know about COVID-19 and what should we know about COVID-19?
1: Great question. Just to give you a little bit of my background, I am a pediatrician. It's been about 20 years. I've uh, practiced both as a civilian in the Army, so I did get a chance to uh, see things outside of the pediatric realm. And then most recently, I've been uh, studying in functional medicine, and I'm completing my training in functional medicine over the last three, four years. And so we're going to hear something about that, too, in regards to COVID-19. But in general, COVID-19 is a coronavirus It's a cold virus that we see these type of viruses every season. Every time cold and flu season comes around, one of the viruses circulating is a coronavirus. It just so happens that at times these viruses change genetically. And at this point, this is a virus that we have not had any experience with immunologically. So COVID-19, like SARS or MERS, is another offshoot if you will from the coronavirus we have seen to now morphing to something that we have no experience with.
0: Where do you think families could find reputable information about COVID-19?
1: The CDC website is always a great reference point. Also there is information going out state by state. So probably for the general lay of the land, uh, the CDC. If you're looking for a world view view then WHO, the World Health Organization. And more locally, there will be information coming out from our local and state governments.
0: I think as parents, our biggest concern about COVID-19 is protecting ourselves and our children. What can we do to protect our families and the people in our community?
1: Well, the interesting part about all this is that uh, this is not unlike being prepared for and making sure you're safe from any viral infection. It's just because of what we've heard, and we'll talk a little bit more about how COVID-19 compares with some other viruses with which you're familiar, that this has just heightened our understanding of what we should be doing all along. And those things would include mainly the fact that these viruses are spread by uh, respiratory droplets. So basically, people's coughs and sneezes, these droplets don't get transmitted very far, So far, it looks like three to six feet, and so everyone is using the six-foot mark, which I think is probably an overestimation. This is not an airborne virus or airborne infection such as tuberculosis. So these viruses usually drop, they're heavy, they drop by way of gravity fairly quickly onto the surfaces that we're all around. Being aware of what we're doing with our coughs and sneezes, I think, is an important part. So coughing in one's Elbow is an excellent way of doing that. If one's going to cough or sneeze in a tissue, then making sure your hands are washed or you've used sanitizer thereafter. And placement of our hands is also of importance. So touching surfaces we have to be aware of, and also touching ourselves. So most of the time, the typical way one gets exposed is by hand-to-face type of motion. So one has touched something, a doorknob, a desk keyboard, and then touches our face, our eyes, nose, or mouth.
0: And so the virus can live on surfaces. Do we know how long it can live on surfaces?
1: You know, that's a good question. I I don't know. I'm not an epidemiologist nor an infectious disease specialist, but um, my gestalt, and I may be proven wrong, would be hours to days, perhaps, but uh, usually within hours. But like I tell my patients, uh, they've got history in third period, They have no idea what happened to the desk in first period, what happened to the desk in second period. So to be aware of what they're touching in third period, because that surface, their desk, could have been coughed and sneezed upon just within hours.
2: Right. It seems to be there's a lot of anxiety around this uh, virus, especially if it is, you know, similar to a common cold or an influenza. Can you talk a little bit about that?
1: Sure. I think this is a great time to talk about some viruses with which we're familiar and then how this compares and contrasts to this. So yes, coronavirus is a cold and flu virus. This virus happens to be particularly nasty. So first, varicella, that's the virus that causes chickenpox. We're aware through uh, our experience with this virus that it's very easily transmitted from one person to the next. Pretty much one child in a family or in a classroom has Chickenpox, then pretty much everyone in that household or classroom is going to have chickenpox. The transmissibility rate is about 90%. So it's very high. The upside is that it's not very deadly, although we probably all bear scars, the older ones of us, from chickenpox. The uh, lethality rate is pretty low. So post vaccination era, I have some data here from 1996 to 2013, there were 83 deaths. So very few and far between. So that's one virus. Highly transmissible really not that deadly. And now we talk about influenza. Influenza is something that is, we have huge numbers of cases. This is very pervasive. It's estimated by the CDC we have somewhere between 34 and 49 million cases of influenza this season. And the season's not over. It's still highly active. With a transmission rate, and it differs, I average it about 20%. So approximately, that would maybe extrapolate to 150 million people have been exposed to influenza this season. Depending upon how one looks at the data, 20,000 to 52,000 deaths have been attributed to influenza, with 136 of those thus far being pediatric cases. So the mortality rate is somewhere around 0.1%. We have varicella, highly transmissible, not deadly. We have influenza, much more transmissible, but again, not very deadly. That's good in as much as we're exposed to those. Now with COVID-19, currently in the U.S., 1,135 cases last I looked this morning with uh, 30-some deaths for a uh, mortality rate of about 3%. So that's where the hubbub comes from, is that the rate of mortality is pretty high compared to both of those, 0.1% for influenza, 3% for COVID-19. And if there's a shiny lining in any of this, it's that uh, the transmission rate is still being worked out, but somewhere between 1% and 5%. So an exposure, 95% of the time or more, does not equal an infection. So that's good to know.
0: That's surprising. I feel like what I hear on the news is if you've been exposed, you're going to get it.
1: (laughs) Maybe. That's just not borne out in the data as it stands. And that's going to continue to change probably because we're getting... New data every single day, but it's not as advertised, if you will. And the other upside certainly would be the fact that whereas influenza has been particularly troublesome for the pediatric population this year, especially influenza B, that there's only 2% of the cases of COVID-19 that are occurring in our pediatric population.
0: So who is at most risk for COVID-19?
1: Definitely those that are older. And those that have comorbidities, and that term that maybe some people don't know, comorbidities, would be you have some underlying health disease already. Diabetes being very commonly quoted one. Other respiratory ail- ailments like COPD, asthma, cardiovascular disease, hypertension, and so forth.
0: So those of us who have children with asthma, do we need to be taking extra precautions with them
1: Certainly, the risk it would seem if you were to extrapolate would be higher, but for whatever reason, we're unsure yet why, the number of cases of folks that have been infected do not really include that children population.
0: That's great to hear.
2: You've talked a lot about how we can keep our, ourselves healthy through hand washing and blowing your nose and immediately disposing of the tissue, et cetera. Are there other things that we can do to boost our immune system or protect ourselves?
1: that's a great question as you had already heard that I was interested in functional medicine. I didn't really flesh out what that was. Medicine in general attempts to treat symptoms that someone is having and functional medicine is trying to look deeper as to why someone's having symptoms and then spend time energy to help those underlying issues so that the symptoms go away. As opposed to influenza and varicella, both of which we have immunizations to boost our immunity against and medications to treat, we have no such thing for COVID 19. So it's a novel virus. There is no medication, although other antiviral medicines have been used on in an inpatient basis for people that are very ill, just because we have nothing else to offer. And there's no current vaccination, although there are feverish efforts sorry the pun, to have that come to fruition. What can we do is increase our own innate defenses, right? So I see our immune system sort of like a castle. I I talk to kids all day, so excuse the maybe simplicity of this. A castle with its outer walls has openings, right? It has uh, a door that things can come in and out so that there's free commerce and so forth between the people and the things inside the castle and that outside of the castle. And that's sort of like our immune system. It lets things in, samples things, and decides what is okay and what's not, what's a pathogen and what's something that's normal. There's only so many defenders, though, on the walls. So the walls are defended by our immune system day and night, except if they've got something else they're working on. Unfortunately, there can come times in which Our defenders are doing other things, taking care of other inflammatory responses, and so there are less folks on the wall to potentially uh, fight against something incoming. What can we do to make sure our defenders are there on the walls, they're awake, and they're ready to go? So one would be to avoid other things that are inflammatory. For instance, food. We put food in our body by the pound every day, and so avoid things that might increase inflammation, such as trans and and saturated fats, sugars, and processed foods. Another way to combat other types of inflammation might be to make sure we're having plenty of antioxidants. So vitamin C is a great thought. You can think if in your diet, foods like citrus, strawberries, kiwi, um, selenium is very good in helping us with our immune response. An excellent source of that is Brazil nuts. Zinc is very important. Vitamin E is also a very important antioxidant, and so you can find that in things like almonds and hazelnuts, green leafy vegetables, and to ensure those vegetables are bruised or wilted because the nutrients within them will be more bioavailable. Vitamin D is a really great uh, kind of measure of your immune system, and over the years I've found that there are so many of us that are vitamin D deficient. Probably supplementing for almost anyone is going to be safe and helpful. So for children, maybe one to 2,000 units of vitamin D a day, and for adults, 5,000 units a day would be a very good way to boost your immune response. Curcumin or turmeric, especially in the phytosome uh, form uh, that's most bioavailable is another excellent way to boost our immune response and decrease inflammation. So again, it helps on both sides of that. It helps make sure our defenders are active, and it also keeps them from being sidetracked with other inflammatory conditions. Let me talk about just a couple other things about how we can boost our immune system we might not think about. Uh, One is exercise. Exercise is excellent as an anti-inflammatory and way of boosting our immune system. When we talk about uh, being quarantined potentially, please remember that you can go outside. In my estimation, there's no further exposure if you're on a bike ride in your neighborhood than there is at your house. Exercise is going to be, I think, an important part of not only keeping some of our mental sanity, but also allowing our immune system to be most effective. Uh, Stress reduction. Okay, this is a very stressful time. I get it, understood. But that works against us when it comes to our immune system. Cortisol is the main uh, chemical we're talking about when it comes to the stress hormone. So try to do things that decrease your stress. So for children, things like routines, normalcy, making sure you have uh, a schedule, those are all very reassuring for children. One of my personal favorites is meditation. It's definitely been shown to help, and you can do that as a family. It's been shown to help decrease our levels of stress. Two more thoughts. One would be adequate sleep. Sleep is underrated when it comes to medicinal value. Unfortunately, we think of medicine as something which we get in a bottle from the pharmacy. But sleep and all these other things we talk about are definitely medicine. They're medicinal. And sleep decreases our inflammation by a large extent. So our children should probably be getting somewhere in the order of 9 to 10 hours of sleep a day uh, or night. And that we have to make sure that things don't interrupt the sleep, especially at smartphones because if the child has them they're often in their bedrooms and that decreases their ability to get into deep sleep and studies have shown that taking that out actually does help sleep whether or not they're sleeping they still may not be getting deep sleep that's restorative and that's what we want
2: does that mean what if the phone is put on do not disturb or not going off
1: sure good question i get that all all kinds of rationalizations for my teenage patients for sure
2: (laughs) oh i I might have been talking about adults
1: We have this great ability to anticipate. For instance, you've sent a text message or you've uh, posted on Facebook or you've snapped someone. The anticipation always is, what's coming back? When is it coming back? What will they say? And so the heightened anticipation comes from having your phone nearby is part of what keeps us from having deep restorative sleep. My patients say, well, it's my alarm clock. It's how I get to sleep. I'm like, have your mom buy an alarm clock. It's not that expensive. And we have this anxiety that comes from sort of um, addiction, really, by way of our phones. And if we lo- lose our phones, how anxious are we? It's because they're on our minds. They're just as addictive as anything else. So taking a break from your phone every night is a good way to put that in a positive and helpful respect towards life. So does that sound like that answer your question? Okay. No,
2: absolutely. I was just you know imagining what it would look like if my phone wasn't on the nightstand next to me, knowing that even though it's on do not disturb, my sister could call, my head of school could call. There could be anybody who interrupts, especially in this heightened time. The awareness of having that could happen, but thinking about putting it downstairs where that's impossible. I wouldn't hear it calms me just thinking about it so I think it's probably a balance if there is an emergency sure or what possibly could there be an emergency about that I really need to respond to at 2 a.m. Sure. when my immune system is lowered and self-care is at that most should be importance, at, its, right?
1: the, at its height so that's a good point I mean there is a life-work balance but I don't think that's so much the case in our children absolutely The final thing I wanted to to mention was that of our microbiome. I would say that we have within us and upon us a host of bacteria that are normal, that are part of our immune system. We're actually outnumbered. That our trillion or so human cells is dwarfed by the 10 or maybe 100 trillion of other cells that are in us and on us. These bacteria mainly are very helpful to help us monitor and make a balanced immune response. So just a couple thoughts about how to have a healthy microbiome, because when that's healthy, then we're healthy. Good sources of soluble fiber. And so uh, this could come in the form of prebiotics or phytonutrients and best gotten in uh, brightly colored fruits and vegetables, organic if possible. Pesticides sprayed on these fruits and vegetables are all antibiotic related, so they will kill our microbiome also. Good sources of Soluble fiber are definitely going to help our good commensal organisms grow. And part of why they're important, those commensal organisms, the ones that are supposed to be there, because they don't allow territory to be taken over by things that are bad. So we want, just like our lawn, we want it to be a beautiful lawn. We want it to be all grass. We don't want any dollar weed. We don't want any crabgrass. We don't want anything else growing there. And if there's no space for that to grow and there's a good root system, then things won't have a chance to, to get in there and grow. So I think it's really important to have a healthy microbiome just by way of not only our immune response, but not giving other things, pathogens, a place to grow. Uh, and then the last thing would be as a placeholder and to help things grow that are, are good by way of our microbiome is probiotics. And certainly the most powerful of these is not what you'd find in a capsule, but in fermented foods. So whereas in a capsule you might have two or three or ten strains of different bacteria, you would have hundreds of strains of bacteria in fermented foods, naturally fermented foods like pickles or sauerkraut or kimchi and so forth. So that's just something to think about when we're trying to rebuild our immune response by way of having a healthy microbiome.
0: I want to go back. You mentioned uh, being outside, going for a bike ride if we're on self-quarantine, if that happens. I'm really glad you brought that up because I think a lot of anxiety and fears are coming from... On this idea that I'm going to be stuck inside with my kid for one week, two weeks. So you're saying if, if self-quarantine happens, getting outside is not a bad thing.
1: Well, it's about congregating, right? It's about trying to make sure that we're not cross-contaminating. That was one of the reasons why teachers are going to be moving to classrooms rather than the classes here at parish moving to the common areas. And that's why. It's so there's no increased exposure to someone who might be sick or is in the window of having been exposed but not yet showing symptoms that could still transmit the virus to someone else think about a bike ride just imagine you're on your bike with your kids it's your bike your germs on the bike there's no more germs on the bike than it's in your house and you're taking a ride in your neighborhood you're on the sidewalk and your guys are just taking a ride around the pond or through the woods or just down the street wherever you might live And there's no more close contact with other people than there is in your house. Now, if you go to the dog park and there's 10 other people, then, you know, that's the idea of keeping your distance, especially when it comes to sneezes and coughs. We talked about the fact these particles are airborne, but not for long, okay? They don't transmit from across the park. They're not going to be in your neighborhood because someone's coughing who's next door. This is within feet of this airborne droplet uh, lifespan, if you will. We can safely do a lot of things as a family that doesn't increase our exposure. We're just worried about getting to places that have more people or that have more contact with surfaces that might be contaminated. We just don't know.
2: So you talk a lot about sneezing and coughing. What about drool or spit or any of these tears? Any of these other things that come with life?
1: I don't know about tears, but certainly anything that's oral secretions or nasal secretions we would want to be aware of. So a little baby, you know, drool, sure. There is evidence the virus can um, also be in stool of people that are infected. If you think about any stomach bug that you don't want, it's the same type of issue, right? After using the restroom, you wash your hands. You might spend a little time disinfecting the common things that people touch, the handles on the toilet, the handles on the doors, and so forth, but once you're in the house, or once you're just with your family or once you're just with your class, you know, if everyone's healthy in that class, then uh, there's no further exposure if we're not meeting new people or, or getting around other groups of people, which is why the whole idea of having large groups of people is uh, being shut down.
2: And when you talk about disinfecting, what actually disinfects, especially uh, when there's a run-on hand sanitizer sure. and Clorox wipes?
1: Okay. Well, I'm not a microbiologist, but this is my understanding, okay? So... Uh, dilute bleach would be great. Certainly, uh, hand sanitizer, anything with alcohol-based hand sanitizer. Hydrogen peroxide is great for surfaces. It breaks down into water and oxygen, so it's you know although it can you know potentially change the color of clothing, just like bleach could, right? So don't spray it on your clothes. But, um, that's also another good disinfectant. The upside again is that this virus is more easily killed than say rhinovirus. Rhinovirus is another cold virus that we don't think much about. So the upside, if there is one, is that the virus is fairly unstable and that cold and flu viruses don't typically like warmer, more humid weather. And so the increase in temperature, the increase in humidity is helpful when it comes to the decrease in the activity of these viruses. So that's good. You know, having some nice weather, living in the south, enduring the humidity is actually something that is helpful when it comes to these viruses that just don't like those conditions.
2: And is it accurate that you can wash your hands and just the simple act of the water going over your hands knocks the germs off? Or does it have to have antibacterial or alcohol uh, properties?
1: Most important activity when it comes to hand washing is that of friction. So and we think about uh, washing our hands, a lot of times people just use the get the palms of their hands. I'm rubbing my hands together. The palms of your hands uh, clean, but we don't think about in between our fingers and certainly our fingertips. So rubbing your fingers, say in your palm, rubbing your thumb in your palm, something that uh, can give a little friction. Actually, that's more helpful. So what I'm saying is that if you had nothing but water, um, do it and use some friction.
0: Better than nothing. Mm -hmm. By
1: far. And better than just using soap and having the water just go over your hands and thinking that is adequate. That's not adequate. Or having hand sanitizer and just kind of patting it on our hands. That's not adequate. We need to put some friction to this.
0: Good to know. At the end of every episode, we ask our guests one question. We put them on the spot. If you had one piece of advice to give our listeners, what would it be?
1: My advice would be to do things that are in your power to change and not to stress about what you can't.
0: It's good advice. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to the Unbabbled podcast. Be sure to subscribe to Unbabbled in the podcast platform of your choice as we will be releasing an additional episode featuring our directors of early childhood and elementary discussing ways to keep your child engaged in learning in the event of an extended school closure. We hope you found today's episode informative. For links to some of the resources we talked about in this episode, please see our episode description. For more information on how the parish school is handling COVID-19, visit parishschool.org slash coronavirus. And if you like what you're hearing, be sure to leave a rating and review. A special thank you to Stig Daniels, Amy Tanner, Amanda Arnold, and Stella Limwell for all their hard work behind the scenes. Thanks again for listening.